Real quick before we start the show, just wanted to let you guys know you can get the show two days early by joining our Patreon. Even for a buck, you can listen to the show two days early. Go to patreon.com slash analog talk and we got a bunch of stuff over there. Check it out and uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Analog Talk, a film photography podcast. I'm your host, Chris. I'm Tim. And today's special guest, we have Daniel Milner. Hi, Daniel. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. We're super excited to chat with yes. you. But before we get into all that, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and giving us a background on how you got started and who you are and all that stuff? Sure. My name is uh, my name is Dan Milner, and I got started in photography. Wow, way back in the day. So I um, I got out of high school and I was in the Merchant Marines for a couple of months. Ended up on a ship down oh. off the coast of South America, and the ship had this had a photographer, a Merchant Marine guy that was the designated photographer and. I remember um, the sh- being on the ship was kind of miserable, but I remember watching <laughs> this guy and, I, and he was moving differently than anyone I had ever seen. And I could not figure out, like we would, when you cross the equator on a, on a commercial vessel, you go through this thing called a shellback ceremony. If, you, if it's the first time that you've crossed the equator, you go through this really weird sort of ceremony. And, and we were all involved <laughs> in the ceremony, but he was kind of moving to the periphery. And I finally figured out that what he was doing was he was watching the light and he was moving based on the light and it kind of stuck oh, with me. Wow! So when I got, I got off the boat and uh, got off the ship, got home, dug up, dug around in my parents' closet, found an old Ricoh camera. And I thought, I got to try to figure out what this guy was looking at. And that's, that's what kind of planted the seed in me for photography. I ended up studying photojournalism at the University of Texas in Austin, got a degree in photojournalism and then uh, became newspaper photographer, which was fantastic because that was the best training ground I could have ever, Mm. you know, school can't really prepare you to be a photographer. They can teach you some things. So I did that for a while and then I jumped from uh, newspaper to editorial, editorial to commercial. I did some fashion work. I did a little bit of advertising. I shot portraits for seven years and then I started working for uh, Blurb in 2010. I had started self-publishing my own work back in the mid 90s and uh, the response to it was just so overwhelmingly positive and it was such a putting my work into print form after I was done was such an education that I was like, I, I got addicted from day one. And so when Blurb came around in 2007, I was on their advisory board. And then I quit photography in 2010 and Blurb reached out and said, hey, why don't you consider working with us? And I honestly thought it would be a three to six month gig. I had no idea mm. what I would do for them. And I've been there for about almost 11 years. So I actually wow. could, might even uh, be longer. It's been the best job I've ever had by far. I've learned so much and my, experience within the creative industry expanded exponentially overnight because instead of just working and being around photographers, I was suddenly around designers, illustrators, artists, street artists, book publishers, writers. Mm-hmm. And it's been it's been an ongoing education for eleven years. So I'm I'm incredibly fortunate to be there. So you have you been doing the same thing at Blurb this whole time or is it kinda no, you're all over the place there. Yeah, it changes. I've worked for, you know, Blurb is in, in essence a technology company. And so mm-hmm. um, the only other company I worked for in my entire life was Kodak Professional. I worked for Kodak from 97 to 99. And Kodak, the analogy oh, wow. we used with Kodak was it was like being on the Queen Mary. 
you know, this giant <laughs> ship and you turn the wheel and the ship just keeps going straight for like 20 miles before it starts to turn. Blurb is wow. the polar opposite. Blurb is like a water bug. It just, it just shifts and moves <laughs> constantly. So I was hired, oddly enough, and hardly anybody knows this. In fact, I don't think many people at Blurb know this. I was hired to build a database. That's how I, that's why I was hired at Blurb was oh. to build a database. And I had hmm. built, built a database at Kodak over a four year period where Kodak gave me a laptop when I started and no, nobody at Kodak wanted to hire me. There was one guy that wanted to hire me <laughs> and he, he literally threw a fit and started pounding on the table. No and, way. Yeah. And they were so, they, they just wanted to shut him up. So they, to appease him, they hired me and Kodak handed me this laptop and it had 20,000 photographer names in it. And they said, these are your customers. And I said, there's not 20,000 oh people God. that we need to, we need to pay attention to. There's about 500. So over four years from basically the Mississippi West, I whittled down the 500 most relevant, best photographers across all genres. And I knew every single thing about them. And wow. most Holy of them, cow. yeah, it was really amazing. Most of them were people I got to know and got into their studios and got to look at what they were doing on a daily basis. And you know, the, the education I got from that job too was pretty remarkable. I only lasted about four years because I knew it was never going to be a career for me. Kodak was shifting major right. layoffs all the time, the transition to the technology. Um, but it was also oddly enough, it was my, so I, I worked from Kodak. I, I quit photography the first time in 97 to take the job at Kodak. And then I had to sign a conflict of interest letter with Kodak saying that I, <laughs> that I would not do assignments anymore because I'd be competing with my customers. And I signed it, no problem. I didn't want to do work Whoa. anymore. Oh yeah, it was a conflict of interest. Now, my photographer friends said, look, just work under an assumed name, You know, get with an agency right. and use a different name. I mm. said, look, I don't really care. I, I still, even though I got a degree in photography, I've worked for almost a decade as a photographer, I still don't really know who I am because my portfolio mm. is not mine. It's someone else's. I've been shooting all these assignments for people. It's, these are not things that I would shoot. So wow. I, oh, wow. I, I, wow. took, I took the job, I signed the conflict of interest letter, but I also signed something with Kodak that said I had unlimited paper chemistry and materials. As long as I worked at Kodak, I could use endless amounts of film paper chemical. So. What I did is I sold all my camera gear except for a, uh, an M6 and a 35 millimeter lens. And I just shot with that for four years, the entire time I was at Kodak. And every waking moment that I was not working for Kodak, I was working on projects. And so that's what really taught me who I was because I was no longer doing things for other people. I was left to my yeah. own devices. And I was like, oh, I'm a 35 millimeter long form black and white reportage photographer. That's who I am. When you said I quit photography, I was like, what do you mean? But now I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I quit doing commercial assignments. And then yeah. during yeah. the time I worked for Kodak, I got a call from my boss, that same guy who threw a fit. And he said, <laughs> he said, you know, we get free classes at the Santa Fe workshops. We'll pay you to go take workshops at Santa Fe. And I said, oh, you're that's it. I thought he was joking. And he said, yeah. no, I'm, I'm serious. You can go. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went to Santa Fe, took a workshop and I took a workshop with a guy named Chris Rainier, who actually, I think lives here part-time now, but I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, took this workshop with Chris and in the workshop, a fellow student was a photographer out of Phoenix named Phyllis Lane, who's just this remarkable person in general, let alone being a really good photographer. And Phyllis looked at my work and she'd been a model for a long time and then a photographer. And she goes, you know, um, you could make a lot of money photographing weddings. 
And I was like, weddings? I've n- never <laughs> once, I mean, anyone who gets a degree in photojournalism, wedding photography is not on your radar, right? No, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> and, and at that time, weddings were considered the photography you did if you weren't good enough to do anything else. Oh, and man. so, Yikes. wow. And Phyllis was like, look, you don't understand wedding photography. You don't understand what you're sitting on. You can do do- legitimate documentary work. People are going to pay you. Mm-hmm. And she actually convinced me to quit Kodak and go back to being a photographer, which I did. And the timing was remarkable because the bubble of wedding photography, the insanity of what wedding photography became hadn't Mm -hmm. started yet. So literally the first client I met with, I booked a job for more money than I'd ever made in my life ever. And and I was like, holy cow. And so I did that for a couple of years and then I realized, okay, this is getting out of hand because the industry is getting crazy. The whole, <laughs> mm-hmm, the, all mm-hmm. the digital guys showed up and I said, okay, so mm-hmm. I bailed. Yeah, so Kodak was the first time that I had an opportunity to sort of understand who I was. And I, I probably shouldn't have gone back to working as a photographer, but I did. And then by 2010, I was like, okay, I'm done. I love photography, but I have no interest in doing this for a living anymore. I just don't, right. I don't want to fight the fight anymore. I just, I want to do my own projects. Man, I get that. I'm the same way. I, I find it so hard to do quote unquote paid work. Like a portrait sessions drive me crazy. You know, I did the <laughs> wedding thing, second shooting for another dude for a while, drove me crazy. There's just no creative freedom. I mean, you can kind of do what you want with it, but you know, you have to get the shot. It's always the same thing all the time. The details, the this, the, it just, it's just not for me. I'm not that kind of person. I'd rather just not get paid and shoot what I want to shoot. So. You know, it's weird because the first wedding I shot, I had a, I shot with a, my Leica and a 35 millimeter and a bag of Triax. Wow. And, and I was cool. like, and I, t- I kept telling Phyllis, I'm like, no one's going to pay me for this. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah. they are. And so I would shoot even at the very end. I mean, I was doing $20,000 weddings. The last wedding I was offered was a $40,000 wedding that I turned down because I was too sick. Uh, I had Lyme disease at the time. I was too sick to do it. Uh, but, mm. you know, I would shoot with by myself with a Hasselblad and a Leica. And I would just tell people, look, uh, you know, you, just leave me alone and let me do what I think I can do. And most people, yeah. the thing is, I was sort of militant about who I worked with. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. I, if I, I always wanted to meet people in person, I had to meet you in person, preferably at your house so that I could determine what your style was and who you were. What are you driving? <laughs> What's your house look like? What's the artwork on the walls? And if there was any red flag whatsoever, I would not do the job. So if I went to your house and I saw something on the wall and I said, tell me about this piece. And you said, oh, I don't know anything about it. The interior decorator put that up. I wouldn't do the job with mm. you because I know that you would not understand what I was doing and you would mess it up. So if I went in there and said, and someone said, oh, that came from my grandfather and you know, he was a mariner and that means such and such. I'd be like, okay, we're, we're, now we're heading in the right direction. Right. <laughs> and because there's nothing worse than getting into a wedding where you you're not on par when the day of the wedding mm-hmm. comes. Oh, and, and, you know, doing wedding photography so much about all the the extraneous things like dealing with a wedding planner, dealing with a location when something goes wrong. Oftentimes, because you're the person standing there, it doesn't matter what's wrong. They'll turn to you and say, what do we do? And so yeah. you realize you're part psychiatrist, psychologist, your event planner. You know, you're doing all these things. And I was lucky because I worked with a, with two planners in LA, one in Palm Springs and one in Hawaii, and I knew them really well. And so they would be the first screen for the clients. And if they got someone who was weird that they didn't know what to do with, they would send them to me. And so <laughs> they were culling the herd for me right off the bat. And then these weird people would come. And oftentimes we just immediately hit it off because, 
you know, they wanted photography, but they wanted something interesting and unique. They didn't want like cookie cutter stuff. And by that time, by the end of my wedding career, it was cookie cutter times a thousand because mm. the digital technology came in and anybody with a website and a camera right. could get a job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's when I said, you know, I think I'm going to get out of this. I think that's super inspiring. Even like we, our last guest, Timothy Agatha, she, she yeah. would not take a job if people didn't understand why she would do it the way she did it or shot it on film. And I'm actually getting married in, in October, God willing, hopefully all this craziness will be over by then. Yeah. But the photographer we chose in her contract, it states like you are hiring me and my art, basically. This is my style. I'm not going to change or like, you know, shoot off a shot list. And I was like, yes, yeah. I love that. Because a lot of times as photographers, we just will do whatever the client wants, regardless, you know? Yeah. And then, like you said, your work becomes other people's work. I felt, I felt that so many times in my life. Yeah. And I think today it's even, it's even, it's changed dramatically because I mm-hmm. think there's a, and I, my friends are sick of hearing me say this, but there's a big difference between photography and content. And most of what you mm-hmm. see today is content. Most of what you're asked to do is content. What you see on Instagram yep. is content. And good photography is incredibly rare. It's very difficult and it's it's often very expensive to produce because you need time and you need access Mm -hmm. and people just don't want to spend the time or or the access. They just want something to quote, go viral quickly. So oftentimes what you're seeing is just derivative of derivative of derivative because, you know, Billy had something that went viral. So you know, Mary's hired to copy what Billy did and then it doesn't work. So they, they go to the next person to try to copy it and being unique is the single most important thing you can possibly be as a creative is trying to figure out what you do that no one else does. Because if you can do something that no one else does, it has value. It has inherent value. If I shoot weddings, you know, with a Hasselblad in a fish tank and someone says, wow, this is no one else in the world's doing this. Well, if you want Hasselblad in a fish tank, you better call him because he's the (laughs) only person that can Mm -hmm. do it. And so, you know, the days I remember going to WPPI early when that Mm -hmm. came out and, you know, watching these crowds of photographers, it was very strange. It was the first time I really saw like cult of personality in in the photography world Mm. where I remember a photographer getting up and saying, I shot 30,000 images by myself at a wedding and this huge auditorium of people started clapping. And I just remember thinking, that is so bad. What, why? First of all, how could you do that? And two, who's going to edit that? And then three, yeah. why, uh. why would a client want that many? Everything about it was so counterintuitive to what I'd learned about photography, but yet that's what took over the industry for at least a decade. And mm-hmm. what took over was the personality of these people, the salesmanship and the ability to get yep. people. It was the very beginnings, the wedding photography world was the very first group of photographers and they'll, they deserve credit for this and they'll never get it because they're wedding people. But they were the first ones to build community and following. They were the ones that Mm -hmm. understood I can, I can mine my audience for data, for cash, for everything. And I don't need clients anymore. I can just mine my, my audience and I can survive. And they did, and they did an unbelievable job for probably a decade before the wheels came off. It's so true. It's a weird, weird time. I mean, we've lived the last 30 years of photography has been remarkable in the transition and changes. And 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 some of, you know, a lot of it is positive. I think, you know, the digital technology, yeah. when it came in, it, it revived an industry that was incredibly stagnant. You know, in the 80s, photography was considered a mature industry. It was kind of stagnant. It was declining. And then all of a sudden the technology comes in and it fired up the, the average person who was like, oh my God, I don't need to learn how to use film in, you know, a dark room. I can just get this thing and I can make pictures. 
So that was kind of cool. Um, and at the same time, it just decimated the professional industry. Mm -hmm. It just, it, it was like a, a bomb going off. And uh, I, again, I worked for Kodak in 97 when they launched the first legitimate digital camera systems, which were the DCS 520 and 560. And these were 15 mm. and $30,000. So it wasn't like the public was wow. buying these. But I saw, I remember the day, I remember where I was, who I was with, the day that I realized what this was going to do to professional photography. Oh, geez. And I, uh -oh. called, I called my boss. I was in Manhattan Beach, California with a catalog shooter who was with a client. He's the first photographer I ever saw tethered. So he, he, had, a, mm -hmm. he had a viewing mm -hmm. room for the client with, with a monitor. I'd never seen anybody that with that before. Wow. And he was shooting yeah. catalog in the other room and the client was sitting there. And he did this catalog shoot and the client looked at him and said, well, that was too easy. Why am I paying you so much? And he said, oh, no. he said, you're paying me because I have this equipment and I have the knowledge and the lighting knowledge and I know models and this and that. And the client said, no, we're, we're going to renegotiate. This was too easy. You're going to have to do a lot more for the oh, same my. amount of money. And I called my boss, the same guy that threw a fit. And I said, I go, this is going to go sideways right now if photographers don't get together and figure out a way to combat this because yeah. you know digital gave photographers something they'd never had which was immediacy and mm -hmm. and instead of saying okay this is five times the amount for to get immediacy they just gave it away and and that's when yeah. i saw in 97 i was like uh oh this is not good so yeah we we've, we we've gone so far down the rabbit hole now i'm not, I'm not sure where we're where we're at <laughs> specifically oh i heard wasn't kodak somebody at kodak like invented the first digital camera right like yeah yeah, in Kodak, this, like 70s or something crazy. Yeah, it was a fiber optic steel cable coming out of a Nikon body that into a suitcase that had a little black and white mm -hmm. monitor on it. And what? And, and the I've never heard this. Yeah. The reason I know this is that, so I worked for Kodak in Los Angeles. I worked for K-Pro in Los Angeles. And so I had a storage facility in Hollywood at the Kodak Motion Picture Office. And the Kodak Motion Picture Office had a giant drive-in freezer system where they would keep, you know, hundreds of thousands of rolls of Kodak mm. motion picture film. And the guys who drove the forklifts in the warehouse, we became buddies. And so they said to me, Hey, why are you always driving around trying to keep your, you know, keep up to date with supplies? Why don't you keep your supplies in the freezer? And then when you come here, just ping one of us and we'll get the forklift and get it for you. So I started storing all my stuff in this freezer in Hollywood. And I noticed in the little cubby that they gave me this like little closet, there was a, a brown suitcase and it sat, it sat there for years. And then when I quit Kodak and I was leaving, I opened it up one day and it was the, it was the first Kodak digital camera. It was that braided wow. steel cable Nikon camera sitting in a freezer in Hollywood. So yeah, Kodak, Kodak never told anyone that because they were par paranoid and petrified that it would, it would eat into the analog business, yep. which is one of the most yep. profitable businesses. So the frustrating thing for us was, you know, I'd be in the field for Kodak and you just heard this question hundreds of thousands of times, what's Kodak going to do about digital? And, and, and we would reply, we invented it. And people would say, yeah. what are you talking about? And we were selling sensors to everybody because at the time, no, wow. at the time there were only two sensor makers. It was like Kodak and Philips or somebody like that. Yeah. And we were selling sensors to all these other brands, but Kodak was like, nope, don't tell anyone because we don't want it to erode analog. And so it just killed them in the long run. Just absolutely it killed them. Which sucks because, you know, Kodak has done so much for the industry and culture and society and yeah. history. And, oh, my God, it was just remarkable. I, I had a great time. I They paid me well, ironically, which is the, the pay was I started in 1997 for $37,000 a year living in Southern California. And I thought <laughs> I thought that was all the money in the world. 
He yeah. was like, oh my God, I'll have so much extra money. And so, but you know, you, you got a company car, you got benefits, you got all this stuff that I never thought I would yeah. ever have as a photographer. And uh, it was fun while it lasted. It sounds like the dream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and endless amounts of film. Oh, the ultimate dream. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So do you still have a relation with them or is it just kind of, it's kind of, it's a different company now, I think, right? It's, Isn't it? Yeah, their, it's totally, film? it's totally yeah. different. I know um, one person who works at Kodak and super nice guy. I run into him typically once or twice a year at some events, SPE mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but I don't have any relationship with them at all. I, I have no idea what they're doing. The odd part is that well, I guess it's it's an odd is maybe the wrong word, but it's interesting that sort of the hipster generation discovered film a few years ago and they've sort of, you know, they're carrying the torch of trying to keep it alive mm -hmm. and things like that. But the relationship that those folks have with Kodak is very different from the generation that I was from or, the, or even the generation that I was the conduit between Kodak and the, you know, the Greg Gormans, the... Um, you know, all the, the top photographers in the world at that time, you know, if you were a Kodak rep, you could call them and typically they'd be like, oh yeah, come on over and you could hang out. That's how I met all these people. Wow. You know, I, I called Greg Gorman, who's, you know, in terms of like celebrity portraiture, he probably he potentially has the single best archive in the history of the world in terms of celebrity portraiture. And Greg's a maniac in all the best ways. He, he's just, <laughs> such, he's, he's one of the coolest, most kind, like generous photographers I've ever met. And he was in my computer. He was in my database. And I'm like, he's never going to talk to me. And I called the studio, just cold called one day. <laughs> and he answered the phone, which I love. He answers his own phone. And he's like, uh, <laughs> he's like, yeah, well, you know, I use Trix, but I don't use your color anymore. But hey, you should come over. We're, you know, we're just having some wine. You should, uh, we just opened this bottle. You should come over to the studio. And I'm wow. like, oh my God, amazing. I'm like, okay. And I drive over. And, <laughs> and before he even says hello, I walk in and it's Trish, who's a studio manager, Kevin, who's his prime assistant, and Greg. And Greg is sh shoving this wine glass in my face, and he's like, smell that. Just just smell this. Just how amazing <laughs> this is. And from the second I walked in, it was like he just treated me like I had been in that studio for his entire life. We d It was just wow. immediate. And then I, to watch him work and look at that, and, mm -hmm. and Greg had the last of the truly great West Coast photo studios. He had a building in, in Hollywood that was absolutely remarkable. The level of professionalism, archive, scheduling, business, finance, it, 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 it basically showed me the difference between a real professional and someone who's pretending to be a professional. Like, and I looked yeah. at Greg and I was like, there will not be someone to come along to replace you. It's just won't happen. And I learned so much from those guys. And there were photojournalists that were that way. There were, you know, I got to meet Gilles Perez in New York a few years ago. I got to go into his studio and I just was blown away by what was happening. The staff, the quality, the thought, the, you know, the, the retain, um, retaining of rights to the, to the work, the licensing mm -hmm. of images, the scale on which these guys were operating. Um, same thing happened with automotive photography. I didn't know anything about, I didn't know that automotive photography was this niche industry until, <laughs> until I saw a guy, a photographer out of Long Beach, California. And I, I saw a vehicle on the highway that was, that was diamond plated metal diamond plating over the entire vehicle. <laughs> and it had chairs, chairs on the front and chairs attached to the back. And I was like, what is that? And I realized it was a production vehicle for automotive photography. And I went to Long Beach and there was a studio complex filled with automotive shooters. And these guys literally would shoot for like Ford, Chevy, 
Dodge, whoever, mm. and they would have, they had studios in Long Beach and studios in Detroit. And if they were shooting for Dodge, they would have a, a car, a, an antique vintage Dodge in a warehouse that they would take out and pick up the executives at LAX in the vintage Dodge. Wow. And if they had, Whoa. if they had, if they were shooting for Ford, they had a vintage Ford and they just had fleet vehicles and staffs and studios. And I was like, oh my God, it was like an anthropologist finding a lost tribe. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> you're like, who are these people? And you realize the, yeah. the money, the volume of stuff. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think CGI came in and it ended all that overnight. It was just, oh, it was just done. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, they basically, wow. they went to CGI almost immediately. Um, and I think the automotive industry was the first photo industry I saw do what's called wholly owned content. And that was a way of working that no one thought any photographer would ever agree to, which is we hire you for five grand a day and we own every single image you make. And, and people said, well, why would you do that? You know, we're licensing images now, we're making legitimate money. And within 24 hours, the first photographer had agreed to it. And once that happened, it was over. And so that whole industry oh. went away. That's Man. so scary. Just to think about that, like how how do you make it <laughs> anymore? Like how do you make it as a photographer these days? Yeah, that's a it's a tricky question. Uh, I think there's a lot of people. Well, I think there's two things, and I've talked about this many times before. But there's there's the online photo community, which is not mm. the real photo community. It's the online. So it's like yeah. the YouTube photo community, and then you have the actual industry, which is you know, like the Palm Springs Photo Festival where you have agents and ed- art buyers and gallerists and curators and um, consultants and all the best photographers, you know, many of the best photographers in the world. You have that side of the industry. And those those are the folks that, I mean, you can make it on either side. You can make enough, you can get enough viewers on YouTube where you can make revenue from YouTube and whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. but you're not really in the industry. In fact, you're totally and utterly unknown to anyone in the industry. Uh, right. And then the industry folks are the ones that are, they're the ones making the good work, but it's also getting harder and harder to make it. And so it's this weird, I don't know the answer to that anymore. I, th- I still think the best way to do it is to make original work. If you, right. you know, yeah. you take Palm Springs, for example, that festival is completely unique to America, right? There's no other event like that. And the founder of the festival is a guy, there is only one, his name's Jeff Dunis. There's only one Jeff Dunis, right? There isn't, I've never met anyone like him in photography because of his knowledge and his experience and his, his ability to reach out to a guy like Sandro Miller or Dan Winters or Eko Soy or whoever and say, will you come to the festival? And not only they come, but they'll show work, talk about work and maybe even mm-hmm. teach a class. Like nobody yeah. else can yeah. get these people to do that. And so you go and you see the, the quality of work being made it's astounding. And, you know, these people are still able to make work that no one else is doing. And so the, there's there's that small segment of the industry that says, this is valuable. We will still pay for this. How anybody young coming along is going to replace that, I, I honestly don't know. I, I just don't mm. know. Because what I find with the, the younger generations and even now creeping into the older generations is that we've decided that buildings like social media followings is the single most important thing. And for 99% of people, there is no monetary return on that whatsoever. So I don't, I don't know. It's like being popular has, has sort of creeped up the popularity contest versus original work. And I think the popularity contest is winning out. Um, but I don't know how you make a living with that. I really don't. And I guess sponsorships and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. I was with, I was in a gallery in San Francisco a couple of years ago with the with the director of the gallery, and there was a the gallery has two rooms 
and they typically do two separate exhibitions. And I walked in and the same photographer had both rooms, which I'd never seen before. And with two incredibly different bodies of work. And I, I sat on the ground with the director and we were just looking at this work. And I said, I go, I've been around photography for a long time. I've never heard of this person. Like, how, how does that happen? And he was an American mm. photographer. I was like, how does that happen? And the director looked at me and he started laughing and he goes, he goes, do you think that this guy would waste his time on social media? He, yeah. His quote was, he said, he leaves the studio four times a year to do exhibitions. Otherwise, hmm. all he does is make work and he makes the best work that you've seen. He goes, social would do nothing but water him down. And like, why would he do that? He just goes out, he does these shows, they sell out, he does books, he does museum shows. Like this is a guy just focused on making artwork. And, I, and it really stuck with me because I thought, you know, and I started thinking about the best photographers that I knew in the world personally, and 90% of them were not on social media. And if they were, it was their studio that was doing it for them. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like they were sitting on Instagram all day. It was that their studio manager or assistant or somebody was kind of playing that game for them, but they were still focused on working with clients, you know, talking and working with people they were photographing and sort of building a long-term strategy. I just feel like photos go to die on Instagram. That's why it's hard for me to, I recently got back into like posting and stuff again. I really cut off for like pretty much a whole year last year, like mm -hmm. all of last year, I think I posted like nine photos or something. And I was, it's tough not to get wrapped up in the popularity contest because it, it feels good to get like a following and, and comments mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Like I get it, but I just started posting for Instagram and that's just not the kind of stuff I want to do either. So, or, or like realizing your, your Instagram is now your portfolio. Yeah. I don't know yeah. when that happened, but <laughs> that is so depressing to me. <laughs> Every time a photographer says, oh, you want to look at my work, go to my Instagram. I just, mm -hmm. and I told somebody this the other day and I made a comment about someone who got all up in arms about it. I just ignore them. I would never go to someone's Instagram feed to see their portfolio. First, you're looking on a phone. It's tiny. Yeah. And second, mm -hmm. you're, you're in a pool of tens of millions of people. And three, you're, yep. give, you're giving each photo, what, a half a second, maybe, if you're looking yeah, at it. Maybe. And then to watch people consume. So I did, a, I did a test about six years ago when I deleted Instagram the first time. And I, I, was, I, know, I remember exactly where I was when I deleted it. I remember why I deleted it. I said, this is not a good thing. It's not healthy for me. I don't like what this is doing to me. So I deleted mm -hmm. it. And I was traveling for Blurb. And I, you know, I'm on the road for about six years straight. I'm in Europe, Australia, Canada, the US. I'm going around and around doing these events and stuff. So I would be in an airport or on a plane or an event. And I would watch someone on Instagram. And I would watch and I would wait. I would watch and I would wait. And then I would go up to them. And I would say, hey, I just noticed you're on Instagram. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm looking on Instagram. I go, tell me the single best images you, you single best image you just looked at. And in, in the entire <laughs> time I did that, I could not, not a single person could identify an individual image. They all said the wow. same exact thing. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, um, oh, um, um, oh, I can't remember. And so, you know, that what you said, it's hard not to get to get sucked into that. That's dope. That's yeah. legitimately dopamine, right? It's a drug addiction. It is. It is. Yes. And it's so funny because, you know, if I said to you, oh, my uncle's a heroin addict, you'd be like, oh, you know, it's terrible. I hope he gets, you know, treatment. I hope he gets clean. If I said he was an alcoholic, oh yeah, I hope he gets clean. When you get into like gambling and sex, people are, are, are less likely to go, oh, that's a legitimate addiction. People kind of, there's like <laughs> that 50% of people go, ah, eh, it's kind of a choice. Just don't go to a casino. Yeah. But when you talk about Instagram or technology, 
people are outraged that you would classify it because literally mm-hmm. how many, what is it? 4 billion people in the world are addicted to fa- oh. Instagram and Facebook or some insane number. Wow. And so it, it doesn't feel good to go. Yeah. I Instagram is my default brain space. And that's what was happening to me. That's why I deleted it the first mm-hmm. time is I was like, wait a minute. Every time I'm between tasks, I find myself saying, Oh, I should check my feed, check my feed. I had a conversation once this blew me away a couple years ago. One of the single best photographers I've ever met in my life, someone who will go down in history as one of the most important photographers of the modern era. I love him. Mm. He said that he was in the middle of client meetings. He would lie and say he had to go to the bathroom and he would go into the stall no. with his phone to check his feed. Oh my! He goodness. said, I was so fragile in terms of likes, comments, and addicted to this. I just addicted to the dopamine of the app that he said I had to lie in client meetings. And I was like, Wow, that's, and here's a guy that doesn't need to be on there. You know, he's, he's working nonstop all the time, very talented, obviously doing things that nobody else can do. And he's still that far down the rabbit hole with the app. And I just think at some point photography is going to raise their head up or we are going to raise our head up and say, we got to find a different way. This is not helping anything. I'm an advocate for like trying to bring blogs back. Just because like I was in it when when like the wedding industry and stuff, everybody had a blog and like that was like a more (laughs) accurate representation of like your work. You know, I feel like I've had panic attacks where somebody is asked like, oh, you're just in doing this kind of job. I was like, yeah, I have a ton of that kind of work. And I'm like, oh, no, none of it is on my Instagram, though. Like, (laughs) you know, like I I, like go and like post or archive or bring back, you know, it's like I. Yeah, I, you know, I have a website. Uh, my site is, I guess you could call it a blog. I call it a, a, li- yeah. a lifestyle site without the style because it's all over the place. You know, <laughs> yeah. I talk about ad- adventure, Lyme disease, creativity, book publishing, whatever. And and I like it, but I just, I, you know, people ask like, you know, how many readers do you have or how many followers or how many minutes a month? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't look at the stats. I have no idea yeah. who's on there, but it's so much fun. And what the blog is, is a conversation where mm. social is a soundbite and, and the conversation on the blog is great. And what's cool is that I've had it now for a long time. And so when I travel, the friends that I've made through the blog are people that I actually know. I either stay mm. with them, hang out with them, meet mm-hmm. with them. And we have this real relationship, whether it's about cycling or climbing or birding or photography or bookmaking or a combination of all this stuff. It's great. These are people that have become friends. And I totally agree with you. I think I think long form conversation is where we will find ourselves once again at some point in the future. I'm not to say the internet yeah. and everything's going to go away. Certainly not. But I just kind of see that social's not helping, right? I, I don't. Right. I don't think the the companies who created the platforms are good, and I don't think mm-hmm. it's helping the dialogue. And, and I was thinking about this the other day. I have friends who are full on social media people, right? They either work in that space or they have sort of devoted their life to these platforms, and. Mm. When the virus situation happened and the quarantines began, and we're you know we're talking maybe a week into the quarantine, at that point I was still going on Twitter because Blurb asked me to keep my Twitter account six years ago when I deleted all my other accounts. They said, "Can you keep that?" Because that that tells you where we were six years ago. Twitter was still right, you know, right. near the top. And I said, "Okay, I'll keep this." So I don't go on it anymore. But you know, when the fight when the lockdown started, the people who were melting down the quickest were my friends who were social media people. And yeah. I think it just proves that they're not real connections, right? It's not a substitute for conversation or, or interaction yeah. or long-term mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. 
you know, I feel bad. Um, I think some people are really built for, for quarantine and others aren't. And it, it sucks. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of people struggling right now. So true. Uh, I just wanted to ask him about his um, books and zines and mm-hmm. print oh, making yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> printing to me, I mean, I, I was fortunate because I went to photography school and it was analog. So you learn black mm-hmm. and white film Same. and and you yeah. learned how to print in the dark room and you know how painful that is at times. And so you spent, you, <laughs> you spent four years making bad prints and bad decisions with yeah. the camera and stuff, but you came out better. And so when printing, so I, I went to New York as a photographer for the first time in 1994 or 95 to show my work. And I was assisting for other photographers who were better, more established, and they were able to make introductions for me at some of these agencies in Manhattan. So I took my portfolio and at the time, your portfolio was a page of slides. That's what you had. You walked in with a, 20 slides oh, on a, cool. you know, transparencies, and they they were mm-hmm. supposed to like take a loop on a light table and go through your portfolio. But the problem was nobody seemed to have a loop or a light table. And so they were holding <laughs> up my work to like windows and desk lamps and stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, they're not even really looking at the work. So I yeah. left. I left New York. I went back to Arizona where I was working at the paper. I went into the design department at the paper, and I said, I think I have to make my own magazine. And they were like, you're an idiot. You're never going to be able to do this. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so I took about six months and I made this oversized, basically glorified, oversized, laminated and bound Xerox, which I still have. It's in the desk I'm sitting at right now. Oh, no nice, way. Nice. Yeah, I still have it. And so I made, t- I could afford 10 copies and I took 10 copies and I mailed them to all the clients that I thought would never hire me. I mailed them to National Geographic, German Geo, the New York Times Magazine, Magnum. I mailed them to all these people. And um, lo lo and behold, they started coming back. And they came back back with just amazing letters, handwritten letters from Kent Korberstein, National Geographic editor at the time, wrote me this long letter and said, wow, we've never seen a portfolio like this. How did you do it? Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I got a call from German Geo and they said, we don't typically work with Americans, but we love your work and we want to talk about doing a project on the Maya later in the year. All these things happened. And I was like, one, the the decision making that went into the imagery, the content, the layout, and it was primitive. I mean, super primitive, but but I had to make decisions. I had to choose a cover. I had to choose what stories. I had to choose how many pages. I had to do the typography. I had to write it. I had to lay the pages out. And mm. I was like, wow, this is way beyond photography. This is about packaging and encapsulating an idea in print form yeah. that will that will hit like the tip of the spear to whoever opens this. That's the goal. So I was hooked from, from day one. And then 96, I went to Cambodia, I came back, I did another magazine that did really well. That got me, not just me exposure, but it got the work published and printed. And, you know, Cambodia was at the time... In 1992, the UN spent more on the Cambodian mission than all of their prior missions combined in history. Mm. And so, and Cambodia was still very much in turmoil. And I I was showing a photo editor in LA the work and trying to convince her that they should run this. And she didn't know what Cambodia was. And she didn't know where it was and didn't know the connection to Vietnam. None none of this stuff. I was like, wow, okay. But I started printing. And then when Blurb came along in 07, I was at prior to that, I was using half a dozen other companies in the world and they were, they were good, but they weren't great. And there were, there were limits to the, to the system, which I was totally fine with. You know, if I needed great Mm. printing, I would go with one company. If I needed a better bind, I would go with this other company. And, and I was fine with that. I was so thrilled to have the options. And then blurb came along and, 
and all of a sudden I had a bookstore on the back end of the of the book and that was really what drew me to blurb was not the quality of the materials at the time there were other companies that were way better than blurb but they didn't have any bookstores they didn't have an ability to sell through the through the platform yeah. and I was mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I was like whoa I don't have to go to the post office anymore I don't have to ship and receive <laughs> yeah, I can just do yeah. this and clients can go there and then they'll buy the stuff and basically if it's branded with my studio and I'm designing it and laying it out they're basically paying for my marketing materials and that's what that's what hooked me on blur back in like 07 and now I'm involved in all kinds of printing things um, I have a really cool collaboration going right now um, called AG23 which is a twice a year zine that um, came out of right field about a year ago. I was, um, I have a friend, a photographer in Orange County who called me and said, Hey, I have a friend of mine. He really likes your photography. He really wants to meet you. He's coming to my daughter's having a two-year-old birthday party. He's going to be at the party. You should come to the party and meet him. And I was like, okay. So I go to the party, hang out with a two-year-old. And then mm-hmm. this guy walks in and he's, you know, his name's Rick, Rick Elder. He's the director of something called Beyond Clothing out of Seattle. And I didn't know anything about Beyond. I don't know anything about clothing. Uh, and Rick's, you know, within 10 minutes of talking to me, he goes, you and I are going to do a zine together. And I was like, what, what? <laughs> and he said, yep, we're going to do a twice a year zine and, I'm, and you know, I'll, I'll pay for it. And we're going to print whatever we feel, whatever we feel will promote understanding through dialogue and art. That's what we're going to do. And I I love this. And I was like, I was like, no, you know, I have a full time (laughs) job. This is way harder than you think it is. Um, I don't have, I don't have time to do this. There's no way. And, and Rick being Rick, he's relentless and he, um, and he does not have a photography background, although he shoots a lot and he's really good. And he's, he's, he's dedicated and crazy about photography. Like we all were when we first started, right. Which Mm. is so refreshing Mm -hmm. to be around. And Rick is relentless and he just kept coming and coming and he's like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And I finally just, I was like, (laughs) yeah, why wouldn't I do this? And so, you know, famous last words a year later, um, after like a ton, a ton, a ton of work, we not only have the pr- first copy of the printed zine, it's printed in 2,000 copies, six by nine soft cover, but we also have an accompanying website with an open submission portal so anyone in the world Ooh. can submit. The first issue has nine stories, nine contributors. We have a world-class designer. Zoe Sadakirsky out of Sydney is the designer of the zine. She's phenomenal, not just a, with design. She's just a super cool person who um, teaches at the best design school in Sydney, has her own publishing firm. So we got her on board as the designer and our goal is to promote the, the contributors. That's it, is we want to build a mm. database of, of really talented people and we want to say, look, how can Rick and I help you do whatever it is you're doing? So, you know, the, wow. the first issue, we have stories on the Panama Canal expansion. Andrew Kaufman out of Miami spent 10 years on that project. Um, we have Charlene Winfred, who's a self-taught photographer who's sponsored by Fuji, who's working full-time now for an NGO in Kurdistan. And she wrote a story about how the, the light and life in Kurdistan reminds her of childhood in Singapore. We have a photo book, uh, story about a photo book that's done by Melanie McWhorter here in town. She's the one that wrote about it. So the first issue has, the, the topic is, the, the, basically there's a general theme, but mm-hmm. as long as it's a good story, and we don't care if you're a professional or a consumer or a prosumer or whoever, if you have a good story to tell, we're interested. And it's not about portfolios. It's about concepts of why is this interesting? Why is it important? Mm. And why do we think wow. you should take the time to do this? And so I've been trying to, um, I, I still get approached to do, to do projects. And so I got like over the last month or so, I've had three or three or four editorial outlets from around the world reach out and say, Hey, we saw this work of yours. We want to run this story. 
And I'm like, I don't really want to do that, you know, but <laughs> you should do a story about this other thing that I'm working on. And I've tried to p- <laughs> pitch them all on this um, AG23 because I think it's really interesting and different. And the other thing that's interesting too, that confuses a lot of photographers is because I work for Blurb and Rick is the director at Beyond Clothing, the assumption is that this is just a promotion to sell books, mm. books and clothing. But when you look at the zine and the zine is QR coded, so the cover, you can jump straight to the website. There's nothing on either site that points at either company. And the idea is is, um, technically you could work backwards and figure out that Blurb's large order services did the printing on this, which, you know, we do offset printing. So 2000 copies, which is, you know, a small run, but it's still, you know, several thousand dollars to get a print run like this. You could work backwards and figure out who did this but it wouldn't be easy. And that that's not the mm. the point of me being involved was not to get you to use Blurb. The point was for, for you to look at this and for me to say, hey, these are nine people that you should know about. And these are nine stories yeah. that, that, you know, how many people have you ever had a conversation with about the expansion of the Panama Canal? Yeah. yeah. Right? And it, Zero. And, it, and, yeah. it, and it, it impacts every single one of us. They moved more earth than any project in the history of the world. And they changed the ecosystem of Central America because they moved so much jungle. And so, wow. and to get a super Panamax mm. boat through the canal, it impacts everything. It impacts all of us, but yet it's not maybe sexy, right? It's not something. Mm-hmm. And so Kaufman went down there for 10 years, worked on this, got amazing access. And then and I, I've known him forever. And I actually went to Panama with him in 2012. So I got to go to see the canal and like hang out and stuff. But he also kept this series of journals on the side. And and I saw wow. the journals and I was like, oh, that's it. That's what we're running. That, that's the hook is to like, look at this and go, wow, look at how cool these things are. And oh, by the way, here's a story about, you know, the Panama Canal expansion. So that's been really fun. And what I find for me now is I still do projects. I still love doing photography projects, but I don't, I don't want them published anywhere else. I mean, I publish them myself and then I move on. It doesn't, there's no thrill Mm -hmm. for me in that. But what is thrilling is to create a group of people like this, like these contribute the first nine people, right? We have in a database. And then the second issue I've got five people lined up so far. So the database is slowly growing of these people who have done these remarkable projects. That's really fun for me. If someone comes yeah. if someone comes to me uh, in Santa mm-hmm. Fe and says, let's say that Santa Fe Institute comes and says, hey, we saw your photography, blah, blah, blah. I would say, no, 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 you don't want me. You want one of these people. Right. Like check out mm. what these guys have done. So that that's where we're at the very, very bottom of the mountain right now with this, but it's pretty exciting to work on. Oh, and it's free. It's free, by the way. It's free. Yes. Oh. Wow. Yeah. So it's free on this. And, and the virus hit right as we were setting all this up. So we're a little bit behind schedule mm. and we're very limited. And, and in the grand mm. scheme of things, when the virus is hitting in Seattle, Beyond is based in Seattle. And obviously that's one of the hardest hit locations. And so yeah. we just had to sort of take a, put it, put it, put it in neutral for a while and wait, wait to see what's happening. We're not putting issue two in neutral. We're still moving towards uh, doing that. But the first one, so the, the zine comes in a zippered slip case. And it's cool. And if you pay for shipping, you can go to the site and we're going to release X amount of copies on the site. And when they're gone, they're gone. And then we also are distributing through mailing lists. And for any, you know, we all know now if I spent 10 years or more working on my database of like clients as a Mm -hmm. photographer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in the zine, I'm going to send your work to my mailing list and Rick is going to do the same. And Rick is because his background is so different from mine. You know, he's got connections and places that I would never get to and vice versa. I have connections in the photo world that he, he'll he never have. And so I cannot wait to get my copies in hand with the slipcases and start sending yeah. these things out because 
it's just so fun, man. It's so, so fun making connections for other, other folks. Man, I agree. Like that's, you know, one of the reasons why we do this podcast too, is to Mm -hmm. just, you know, community is, is everything, you Mm -hmm. know, like we're, yeah, it's just awesome. I love it. I love it. And that idea is like my dream because we always talk about doing kind of like an analog talk twice a year, little zine thing of either guests and listeners or yeah. both or yeah. something. You know, I really want to put something together and the wheels are the wheels are turning. It's, <laughs> it's a lot in some ways. It's a lot easier than you think. Right. And so a lot of a yeah. lot of people convince themselves they find reasons not to do it. Um, Mm. and what I found is like the zine was purposely the zine that we built is not a precious object. It's not designed to be high end paper. It's not, there's nothing about it. It's beautiful. But the thing is it's informal and it's approachable. And if you, the goal is to get it and just do it. And if you like it, you, maybe you're going to hand it to somebody else and they're going to hand it to somebody else. And so a lot of times when, when it comes to bookmaking, photographers in particular, they get obsessed over all the technical details, all the material choices, and they end up never making anything. Um, the, what's, ex- <laughs> what's exploding in the book world is not the coffee table photography book. Those are a disaster financially. They always have been oh, hard mm-hmm. to sell, expensive to produce. Um, you know, they're, they're heavy to ship, all these different things. What's exploding, to, which is wonderful, is the zine in the art book world. And yep. in zines and informal, you go to Kinko's, make some Xerox copies. Um, you know, I heard Daito Moriyama, the Japanese photographer, has a little Xeroxed foldable thing that sells for $40,000 a copy. I don't know if that's true or not, but I would, not be, I would not be surprised, <laughs> you know, if it's in finite, if there's limited edition and it doesn't matter what oh, the yeah. materials yeah. are. It doesn't matter if there's perfect printing. The only person who will ever pick up a publication and hold it this close to their face and analyze it is another photographer. Right. So, yeah. so if, if that's your audience, then you have to pay attention. But the general public doesn't care. They don't care if it's on newsprint or it's on high end paper. True. They don't care if it, what they care about is price. You know, if it's a mm-hmm. if it's a four dollar zine or a eighty dollar coffee table book, you know, in photography school, you're you're brainwashed into thinking you have to make the eighty dollar coffee table book. But in reality, the public mm-hmm. doesn't want those. You know, never has. So it's um it's pretty fun. Yeah, that's this, so true. This is the most dynamic time in publishing for sure in my entire life. I just love how easy it is now, especially yeah. with Blurb. And there's, like you said, there's a ton of different companies yep. out there. I mean, it's, it's some come with their own software where you don't have to get crazy with the design. You just kind of toss the pictures in there and, mm-hmm. you know, tell a little story. How many books have you done? No, I just wondered how many, oh, how many Blurb books you've printed in the last <laughs> 11 yeah. years. I've done, it's over 225. Wow. Yeah. I was thinking it was going to be up there. Yeah. Daniel, I've only done one. I've only done one zine through Blurb, <laughs> yeah. but only one. I'm slacking. I'm behind. And that goes back, you know, the first like 50 books I did, they were books that I sold to commercial clients. So I would do an assignment mm-hmm. and then I would turn the assignment into a book and then I would sell that book to the client. So the first 50, you can't really count because they were done for commercial reasons. And of all the the rest of them, a lot of them are books that I was experimenting and testing or trying something. I also have a whole series of edition of one books where I would go do an entire mm. project and I would print exactly one copy of the book one. and then I would modify wow. it after the fact. And then I add that to a big collection. So I have 15 of those books in a series. And then, you know, I was approached by a, a museum that said, oh, we really want these in the collection kind of thing. So those are like, you know, art books. And then I have a magazine wow. series and then I do collaborations with other other artists. I did a two book, mm-hmm. uh, two books in Miami called Magic City that one got nominated for photo book of the year in Australia. And these are little like $10 blur books, but they're custom books, Man, books that are that's so cool. customized after the fact. I mean, the thing is, 
What I find with photographers in books is you have to unlearn everything you learned, right? What, what mm. the industry tells mm -hmm. you to do is often the worst thing you could possibly do. So you have, it took me, it took me a long time. It wasn't until 2007 that I figured that out. And I made this little $4 book that was everything I was told not to do in photography school. And, <laughs> and the art world looked at it and said, this is really cool. This is valid. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? No, no, that's not a serious <laughs> book. And they were like, yeah, it is. This is really good. And so I thought, okay, I got to unlearn what I thought I knew about books and start over. And once you do that, it's so liberating that it just, it's like waking up to a sunny day every day. You get up and you go, oh, I can do anything I want. This doesn't, yeah. I can put the, you know, the most critical part of the element right dead center in the middle of the gutter and then force the viewer to bend the book backwards and sort of break the spine <laughs> to see it. But yeah. <laughs> If you think about that, it's forcing them to engage with the book in a way that they probably never have. And that in itself is yeah. worth doing. And um, yeah, it's funny. I handed a book one time, a blur book to um, someone I know who has one of the best photo book collections in the world, literally worldwide. He has, I'd say, top three in the whole world. And I handed him Damn. a blur book and the first thing he did was break the spine. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what's happening? But he was looking at the materials. He didn't care about the content. Oh, okay. He just okay. was like, "What? How can I dissect this?" And I thought, "Oh, that's in that's yeah. interesting. That's different. What if I designed something mm -hmm. where you had to break the book to view it, kind of thing?" And so that, yeah, that's so cool. I love that. Wow, Man. endless possibilities. Yeah, you can endless. really kind of go crazy with with things like that <laughs> if you let yourself, like you said. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's fun. And and also too, when you do a small book like that, you just you you create it, you print however many copies you want, and you move on with your life. You know, if you do, mm -hmm. oftentimes, yeah. if you end up doing a big coffee table book with a traditional publisher, there there's definite benefits to that. Uh, and there's still really wonderful books being made. But that's a marriage. That's an 18 month minimum marriage mm -hmm. to that mm -hmm. book. And I see so many young photographers basically spending thirty to fifty thousand dollars. They pay the publisher to do their book, mm -hmm. and then they take eighteen months of their most productive time of their life and they dedicate it towards selling something that the public typically doesn't want. And so it's hard. And at the same time, that can be the smartest thing in the world because if you place one of those books with the right person or a museum curator or mm -hmm. the right collector, it can totally change your life. And you know, that's yeah. a, that's a pretty, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's, it's like publishing is putting a riddle of your life together, uh, in print form. And it's good. I think the exercise, even if you did this, even if you edited a book, sequenced it, laid it out, chose materials, chose typography and never printed it. It's a great exercise. Um, hmm. but, yeah. it, but bookmaking terrifies online photographers, people who spend their lives in the digital space. It terrifies them because it's not about photography. It's it's what happens after. It's editing, after, editing, yeah. sequencing, design, page layout, choosing type, type. Those are all separate skills. And most of us don't have all those skills. And so you realize right. very quickly, uh-oh, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not a good I'm not a good editor of my own work. What am I gonna do? And yeah. it's so easy, yeah. it's so easy to just go, ah, forget it, I'll go back on Instagram or you know, I'll make another YouTube film. And so it's fun. It's it's challenging. Most of the books I've made are terrible. I mean, they're terrible. I would never show them to anyone, <laughs> but um, but I learned something from each one. Man, I could I could listen to you talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're in, just saying. you're Same. in quarantine. What else? What else do you have to yeah. do? Yeah, <laughs> that's the only reason. If you weren't in quarantine, you'd be like, all right, let's cut this short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just I love I love photo book stuff, and I just like your passion behind it is very inspiring, and I I enjoy it. So I'm starting a series called Books I Love. 
where I'm going to talk about and film. I have like 400 photo books that I've collected over the years, my wife and I. Oh, nice. And wow. I'm just going to talk about books that people might not know about and why they're interesting, um, not just because of the photography, but like maybe who the designer was or the materials or the story or how it's yeah. done. The first book is um, is a book by Tim Hetherington uh, on Liberia that was shot. He, was, he spent eight years in West Africa, four in Liberia, shooting with a Hasselblad. And that's not easy, you know, doing reportage with the Hasselblad. And it's just remarkable. And his he was more known mm. for the work he did in Afghanistan and the film uh, Restrepo that he did with um, Sebastian Younger. But he was killed, oh, killed yeah. in Libya yeah, back okay. in, I think, 2012. Mm-hmm. But this, oh, Liber- no. this Liberia book is, it's so good. And it's so mm. unbelievable the amount of information in the book that, like interviews, Portraits and interviews, history of yeah. Liberia, the foreword he wrote, the style of photograph, the range of content that he photographed. I just can't even get my head around it. So it's something that yeah. every photographer can learn from looking at this thing and just saying, wow, you know, we need more Tim Hetherington's in the world. We'll be right back with a listener question for Daniel right after this message from our sponsor. Support for Analog Talk also comes from Polaroid Originals. Go to PolaroidOriginals.com and use the offer code ANALOGTALK10 at checkout to receive 10% off your next purchase. All right, guys, this is the part of the show where we break off and take a question from one of our listeners. And this week's question comes from Chris Visser. And he wanted to know, your feed seems to be pretty much exclusively black and white. Do you ever experiment with color? Are there times when you see something and wish you had color film loaded instead? That's more than one question. Uh, yeah, I think you fit like three. <laughs> yeah, in there. no, it's it's good. <laughs> so when I was studying photojournalism at UT Austin, it was a black. It was basically a black and white program, right? But mm. I was I, I bought a police scanner, and I would take my old Land Cruiser <laughs> and I would drive down to the I thirty five that splits Austin in the middle of the night, and I would park under the I thirty five and I turn my scanner on. And it was just mayhem. It was, you know, drug drug war and and um, gang fights and domestic violence oh, and man. buildings on fire. And so I got to know some other photographers, like professionals that were working in the area. I got to know the Austin Fire Department photographer, a guy named Erwin Hatton, who was super helpful to me. And they were all shooting color. And I realized if I was going to get a job when I graduated, I had to know how to shoot color. So I actually jumped from black and white very early and started shooting transparency. So I've actually shot color from day one. And a lot of the commercial Mm -hmm. work I've done over the years was color because the clients were demanding that. But Mm -hmm. about 10 years into my career, I realized at the end of my Kodak time, I realized I was really a black and white photographer. That's what I wanted to do. So it doesn't happen where... I'm shooting black and white, wishing I had color because if I make a decision to do a project in black and white, that's what I'm doing. I'm just focusing on that. And I think once you make the technical decisions up front at the beginning of a project, it's such a relief because if you're using equipment you've used a thousand times before, and in my case was typically an M series Leica and a Hasselblad. Once, once I did that, once I used that camera system, those, those systems over and over and over again, and I knew the film I was using, Tri-X, over and over and over, I don't ever have to think about it. You're never thinking about your equipment or your film or materials or anything. Mm. All you're doing is looking yep. for light. You're looking at light. You're looking for timing. You're looking for composition. You're talking to people. You're getting permission. You're getting access. You're you know filing things away in your head like, I think I got it. I think I got it. So I, I don't ever I don't ever regret, but there are times um, um, that I love to go out and shoot color. I mean, absolutely. Although two days ago, I, I, 
I, I shot this pretty a photo that I actually really love. That's a dead raven. It's this huge, it's the biggest raven mm. I've ever seen, dead upside wow. down in a tree underneath a nest. I mean, it's massive. It's oh, probably wow. got a four foot wingspan. And I shot it in black and white and I just look at it. And I'm like, I absolutely love this. It should be in technically, it should be in color. It's in a green, you know, pinion tree or juniper tree. And it's, but I'm like, uh-uh. This is black yeah. and white, yeah. So, and and my feed, I think if he's referring to my Instagram feed, I, I technically I still have an Instagram account. I don't remember the last time I posted on it. That account was I did not make that account. That was that account was made in my name by someone else who oh. who was going to manage it. I I told him this person said, look, we want you to do an Instagram account. I said, never going to happen. And they said, don't worry, wow. we'll, we'll do it and we'll manage it for you. And I said, look, I don't care. I'm never going to go near it. And then they they created it. And about three days later, I thought, you know, I better look at this thing because it has my <laughs> yeah. name on it. And I did. Mm. And, and, and I'm not faulting them at all because how do they know what I'm thinking or how do they know what mm-hmm. I would write in a caption? So I looked at it and I was like, "Uh oh, I can't have this. So I said, look, if, if you think I have to have this thing, then I will manage it. And so the first thing I did was I went all black and white on the feed because there has to be some sort of cohesiveness to me for something yeah. to be effective. Mm-hmm. But I don't really take it seriously. And then I, I posted until I thought no one was looking anymore. And I stopped just to see what would happen. And no one said anything. So nobody was paying attention to the feed. And I stopped <laughs> posting. <laughs> Man, I love that. I love that you're not like social media driven because mm-hmm. it's it's just like we talked about earlier. It's so unhealthy. I'll go one step further. You, not only am I not into social media, but you know what I love to do more than anything else? I love to write letters. I, yeah. I write yeah. letters. I, I would I would much rather, um, I have friends scattered around the world that we only communicate through written correspondence. And, um, oh, I, love and that. I have a funny story. So not a, this is a tragic story, starts out tragically, but there's an artist named Peter Beard who was very influential to me um, for my entire life. He's an American who, who spent a lot of time in East Africa in the 50s and 60s. And he's an artist, a photographer, and a diarist. He does the most amazing journals I've ever seen. He's missing right now. He's 82. Oh, he, no. he disappeared outside his house in Montauk a few days ago. Last Tuesday, they haven't found him yet. But Beard was really influential to me. And um, there are two other photographers and artists in the world who are friends of mine that were also influenced by Beard. And because Beard is a journalist, is a journal maker, a diarist of the highest, highest level I've ever seen, the three other people and myself, we typically only communicate through written correspondence because that's sort of an homage to Beard. Because mm-hmm. I don't need to talk to you on the phone. I don't need to Instagram you. I'm not going to text you for sure, but I'm going to take the time to write this letter to you about what's happening in my life. And so the other day when this beard thing happened, the three of us kind of, I was the one to break the code. I kind of reached out (laughs) on email and said, hey guys, beard's missing, you know? And I felt bad because I wanted to put it in letter form, but I wanted them to know immediately. So, So yeah, I think letter writing is a really wonderful thing. And I write letters to people I don't even know just to see what happens. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's so romantic. Yeah. And you should see how you should see how terrible my handwriting is. It's a <laughs> it's a miracle that anyone can read this. And I guarantee there's people that get halfway through and they go, I give up. I have no idea what Milner's okay. talking about. I'm getting ahead of yeah. you. Yeah, but it's it's especially like in times like I mean, obviously the pandemic and everything, who knows if it's safe to send letters right now, all that stuff, but like just to get a letter or something tangible, you know, is always a much better feeling. And you know, we we do like a holiday print 
swap thing through our, through our little community here. And even that brings me so much joy, just seeing everybody's getting each other's work and stuff like that. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. So the, the whole pandemic thing is pretty interesting because I was talking to somebody last night on the phone and it was a, it's a, a famous photographer, he and his wife. And I, when I was, when I just started working for Kodak in Los Angeles, I had seen an article about him in, the, in French photo magazine. And at the time, French photo was like the most badass magazine you've ever seen. They didn't have any of the censorship that the American version had. And I saw this article about this American photographer who was um, spending half his life in France and half in the US. And I was fascinated by this guy. And I was like, I gotta meet this guy, I gotta meet this guy. And it turns out he lives in LA. And I'm like, no way he lives in LA. So I started sending him letters as if we had known each other forever. And I, wow. I started writing him letters about like me on assignment doing projects, but writing it as if we'd known each other. And one, one day the phone <laughs> rings and he's like, who are you? Like, why are you sending me these letters? And that's how we got to know each other. And we were talking last night and joking about that's how, you know, after all these years, we've now known each other for 25 years. It's based on those letters. Wow. Wow. Man, what a great story. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I was desperate. I'm like, I got to meet this guy. He's he's got the best (laughs) life I've ever seen. (laughs) <laughs> it just reminds me of like the good old days before mm-hmm. the internet when like if you wanted you know a band's like seven inch or something like that mm-hmm. you'd have to write them a letter <laughs> throw seven bucks in an envelope yeah. and send it to them and hope that you'll get a record in the mail you know what i mean like it's i missed those days like it was such a good time back then i, I had this experience a couple of years ago i was working north of santa fe in a small town which is a very kind of rough town and i'd spent quite a bit of time sort of getting access and meeting some people and, and then I found out about a book that was written about the area that was on a very specific subject matter that was written back in the 80s. And I read this book. I was blown away by the author and her writing style. Mm. And, and I thought to myself, I think I'm photographing the grandkids of the people who are, she's talking about in this oh, book. No so I thought, I'm gonna, I'll just reach out and ask her. So I go to her website and the only contact information, I kid you not, is a mailing address in very remote Bolivia. Whoa. And I'm like, I'm like, that's insane. So I write a letter and I'm thinking this is never coming back, right? And so I write yeah. this letter and like three months later, the response comes back. It looks like it's been driven over by a half dozen vehicles. And, um, <laughs> and she's like, yeah, those are the grandkids of the people that I was talking about in the book. So I was like, no wow, kidding. long live the letter, man. This is, this is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's Amazing. great. We got we have a two part question about cameras. What kind of film photography podcast would it be if we wouldn't ask you some camera questions? <laughs> yep. So the first one is it's uh, your desert island, uh, the camera you can't live without. You can only choose one on this island. There is a lab, you know, they'll develop your film <laughs> yeah. and stuff for you. Or if it's a digital camera, either or. Ooh, man. Uh, well, there's there's two. Yeah, it's like it's like picking your favorite child. I know. <laughs> yeah, there, there's two immediately, but I have to go with one because I use the system longer so the camera would be a m4 leica with a the 50 the 50 f2 leica lens which is one the one with the Mm. built-in hood so that i shot leica i bought my first leica in 1990 i um it's kind of a funny funny story my father was trying to teach me how to invest all right this this is classic so my brother my 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 father does not want me to be a photographer my father my father wants me to be an investment banker which i didn't even know what that meant so my, and my dad was not an investor. I have no idea why he thought he knew anything about investing, but he says, we're going to do a test. 
I'm going to put a very small amount of money in a bank account. I'm going to teach you how to invest and then you're going to invest it. And I'm, I'd already been to San Antonio Camera Exchange. I already saw a Leica M4P and a 28. I knew how much it cost. <laughs> and, I, and so I played a charade. I played along with my father because I knew that the money that he would put in the account was the exact amount that the camera and the lens was. Oh, it was man. less than a grand. But it was like it was used and it was sitting there waiting for me. And so my father, like, blah, 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 blah. He's talking about investing. I'm not listening. All I'm thinking about is yeah. the money. So the day he releases the money, I withdraw the entire amount and I go buy the Leica and the 28. Yes. And my dad was yes. pissed, but he realized like oh, photography bet. was not a hobby. It was like something I was really driven to do. So I shot Leicas forever. And then I came, moved to Santa Fe or bought a house here part time, started living here part time about 12, 13 years ago. And there's a, photographer here in town whose dark room butted up against my dark room and he's awesome he's like one of my mentors in photography i think he's a wonderful guy and i go to his dark room one day and he goes hey he goes hey look at this and he has a shoe box and in the shoe box is a first batch german black paint m4 that hasn't been oh that hasn't been used in years so the clutch is kind of off and the shutter's kind of off. The, the vulcanite or whatever it is on the outside is a little worn, but it's pristine otherwise. Mm. And I was like, holy cow. And so I get on the phone at, in the dark room. I call my friend at Leica and he goes, read me the serial number. And I read it to him and he goes, that's a first batch German black paint M4. He goes, I, I'll wow. buy it, I'll buy it, I'll buy it. And I go, I'm not calling for you, I'm calling for me. So Yeah, what do you mean, <laughs> yeah. exactly? So I said, I'm like, look, I said, there's no way I can afford that camera. That's like a, you know, that thing's worth a lot. And the guy goes, my friend goes, 500 bucks. Oh my no, God. And I was come like, on. 500 bucks. And so I bought it for 500 bucks. I sent it to Leica and Leica totally rebuilt it for me for free and sent it back. And it, that's the best light like I've ever had. It's the smoothest, the most solid. Um, and and mm. the 50 F2 is my all time favorite lens. And so that that's what I would take to the island. The, the runner up, if I had to use the camera as a weapon on the island to protect myself, <laughs> I would take the, the Hasselblad, you know, 500, mm -hmm. yeah. 500, whether it's a 503 CW or 500 CM or whatever. I love the Hasselblad and the 80 mil. That's yeah. my second, second camera. What Man. a story on the first one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jeez. yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for my, my Leica story where somebody's like, do you want this? And I'm like, what? <laughs> they're out there. I mean, there's so many now though. It's a little trickier than it was about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, people yeah. were just dumping. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. people mm. offered me bags of Hasselblad equipment that, and I turned yeah. it wow. down. I was like, I already have enough. I don't need any of this stuff for free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. So the, the second part to the question is the, the white whale. Is there anything out there that you've never got to shoot that you kind of like always lusted after? Ooh, man, that's a good question. I think, is there any camera system that I never got to shoot? It would probably have to be like eight by 10. I think that I've, I've mm. never shot eight ten. I've mm -hmm. shot four mm -hmm. by five yeah. quite a bit. I've never shot eight ten. And if you look at like Edward Bertinsky's work from China with eight by ten, you know it's pretty. The detail, mm. it's just gorgeous. That combination of like digital quality, but with film resonance. And I think eight by ten would be the only thing I haven't really tried out or used. Mm. Yeah, I don't. There's not. I don't really have a hole. I've tried so many different kinds of equipment over the years to try to figure things out, but. I was lucky because I was never really enamored with the equipment side. I was, mm -hmm. I was enamored with the experience of being in the field. I was never, it's weird. I was never enamored with the front end or the back end. It was only 
being in the field and having the experience of making the work. That's what, that's why I still love doing it is to just to be out there. And it's fun when you get something good and you go, yeah, I think I nailed this or, you know, I built a good story here, but the experience of the field is what it's, what I'm after. You're one of the lucky ones who's not like us where we want all the shiny, pretty cameras, (laughs) every single thing, you know, there's a lot. And now it's exponential because you have, you know, they're releasing stuff. It's so frequent. Like Mm -hmm. I still use X-T2s, the Fuji X-T2. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. when the three came out, I thought, yeah, I'll probably get a three. And then I like, now they're already at the four. And, right. I, and I'm four, like, yeah. you know, I definitely could use the four because I need something I can yep. handhold to do video. And then I'm like, yeah, I probably don't need it. You know, I can probably like, I can handle <laughs> Or you could wait yeah, until they release like the six or seven and get the four because that'll be good enough yeah. all you need, you know? Yeah. I'm just, um, I'm enamored by other stuff like bicycles and, and uh, you know, I have so many other interests in life that I get, um, you know, trail running shoes, all these other things I can obsess go. over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, eight by 10 is definitely, definitely on my bucket list too, Same. especially because Polaroid still sells yes. like peel apart eight by 10 for it's like 200 bucks for 10 shots, which is outrageous. But like, I would just love to do that. Like maybe yeah. I'll just buy some and keep it in the fridge until I pull the trigger on yeah. an eight ten camera. <laughs> yeah. Eight by 10. And then Pol- exactly. Polaroid made a 20 by 24 camera too, that you could get yeah. sheets for. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, type 55 Polaroid was just a godsend to photographers. That was mm-hmm. the most mind blowingly cool stuff. I used to have a crown graphic, four by five that I would hand hold and shoot portraits with a crown graphic uh, with that type 55. And it was just remarkable. And when that stuff went away, I mean, I had photographer friends that just bought refrigerators to, oh, to yeah. stock with oh, it. Yeah. Um, yep. yeah same, same thing happened when like some of the uh, darkroom papers went away. At Kodak Ektalor was a paper that had cadmium in it, which is a heavy metal, very bad for the environment. And when they, um, they decided, you know, this isn't good for the environment, we're gonna take it away. I knew photographers who bought freezers and bought as much uh, Ectolor as they could possibly get their hands on. We're hoarders, if not anything else. That's for sure. sure. (laughs) We know how to hoard. Well, this has been amazing, Daniel. Thank you for taking the time to join us and share all your knowledge. This has been super fun. I was going to ask you, where can everybody check you out? Normally, we you know, push for Instagram, yeah. but what's your website? Where can everybody <laughs> go find you? You can find me at uh, Shifter, and that's S-H-I-F-T-E-R, and it's .media, not .com. So it's Shifter.media. Mm-hmm. That's sort of my website where I post a lot about photography, about books, about adventure. I post all the books that I read. There's all, all, it's a weird site. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Timothy, what about you? Guys, head over to Instagram. It's at Timothy Makeups. I also make film photography related YouTube videos. Easiest way to find it is go to the search bar. Just type in Timothy Makeups. You'll find stuff there. Chris, where are you? So I'm Chris B. Photo on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Analog Talk Podcast on Instagram and Analog Talk Pod on Twitter. I think I got those right. And we have a Facebook <laughs> page and a group you can join and share stuff and talk to each other. And yes, that's it. Daniel, thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. it. Love talking with you anytime. I hope you guys stay safe in the quarantine and I hope you stay creative. Oh, yes, thank you. you as well. All right, guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye. First off, Chris and I would like to thank Daniel Milner for coming on the show. Personally, this is is a huge episode for me. I'm a big fan of Dan's work and just love his passion for photography, for publishing, just, you know, all around amazing dude. Thank you, Daniel, for coming on the show. Guys, that's going to take us to Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash analog talk. Over there, you can get the show two days early every Monday for just a buck. We have a bunch of other stuff over there, too, we've been doing. We have Patreon after shows and Patreon specials. 
just head over, check it out. It's patreon.com slash analog talk. Guys, until next week, we'll see you soon. Later. <laughs>